Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. I'd like to start off with a survey. Thinking about Adam and Eve and the seven days of creation and the flood story in Genesis, I'd like to know how literally you take those stories. So, get out one of your hands, could be right hand or left hand. I want you to hold up five fingers if you take the Bible absolutely literally. That is definitely how it went down. There was a snake in the garden. And then hold up one finger if you think it's basically just some helpful stories and uh, um, it didn't necessarily exactly happen that way, but they, these stories help us to be good moral people. And then two, three, or four fingers if you're like somewhere in between. You know, you have few doubts, but, and this is a safe space, I'm, no judgments. So, uh, so one to five, hold up your, hold up a hand so I can see. Uh, no, you can't do two, t- two hands. All right, all right. Very good. Okay. All right. Very nice. Okay. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. All right. So, you know, a lot of Jewish people ask me this question. Do you take the Bible literally? And uh, do you really believe all that stuff that went down? So, we just celebrated Simchat Torah, and we're starting over with the creation story and the seven days of creation and the snake in the garden and Adam and Eve. And next week, we will read about a worldwide flood and a single family finding protection in a giant wooden ship with all the animals. How much stock do we put in these amazing stories? How reliable is the Torah? What was the culture and belief system of the writer, who was most likely Moses, in the ancient Near East at the time? And does that matter? Does that play a factor into the reliability of the Torah? What do we mean when we say that Scripture is inspired, or God-breathed, or that this is the Word of God, right? How can we talk about human authors and their viewpoints and culture and still understand this book to be God-breathed? How do we understand when the Apostle Shaul writes to Timothy, all Scripture, and here Paul is referring to the Tanakh, the Older Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed and is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. So how, how can we understand that? A lot of this sermon is based on two helpful books. So if you want to do your own research on this topic, I recommend uh, both of these. The first book is On the Reliability of the Old Testament by K.A. Kitchen. And I love that name too. 
So let's start by trying to find the garden which was in Eden. You know, if it's a real place, where was it? And where is it today? Could you go there? We'll see. This week's Parsha, Bereshit, tells us this. A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided into four streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx stones are also found there. The name of the second river is Gishon. It winds throughout the land of, of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that flows toward the east of Ashur or Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Well, we know where two of these rivers are because they're still there today. And they are called the same thing today that they were 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Here's a picture of the modern nation states where the rivers are today, or at least two of them that we know about. Notice that this is also what area? It's the Fertile Crescent, right? This is where Abraham is from and where he walked through to get to the land of Canaan, later known as the land of Israel. It makes sense that the beginning of creation starts in what scientists and historians call the cradle of civilization, right? This is where historians think it started, and this is where the Bible says it started. So it kind of matches up, doesn't it? The Fertile Crescent, right? As for the four rivers, according to Genesis, they come together in Eden, but they originate elsewhere. Did you catch that in the, in the verse that I read? Kitchen asserts that the other two are as follows. This is what he thinks. The Gihon is perhaps east of the Tigris in the mountains of western Iran, and the Pishon was the Arabian Goldlands River. Uh, as it says, it went through the, the area of gold, but is now dried up. Can a river dry up? after thousands of years and exist before? Absolutely. So here's a summary of his research findings. He, he, he puts all these things together, and this is what he says. Quote, So what we have may, may have been a very ancient river from Havilah to the head of the Gulf, a Pishon, that would have flowed during about 7,500 BCE down to at least 2500 BCE with dry intervals, perhaps around 4500. So maybe it dried up and then came back. Um, and after which it dried up and vanished forever. So as for the flood, the folk memory of the Pishon would have been handed down for some 400 years in South Mesopotamia and Northern Arabian tradition to old Babylonian times of the patriarchs and transmitted by them along with the overall culture of creation, tradition of creation, time span, crisis flood, time span to their own time. Eden would have lain in the area now underwater in the north end of the Gulf, gone forever, unquote. So the garden in Eden must have been washed away by the flood, and the area is now underwater. I never thought about that, but it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? How about the incredibly long lives that the pre-flood humans had? We read, uh, I think we just read this, right? Um, did, you, did you think about that when we were reading from the Torah? Like, wow. Here it is again. Here's the genealogy of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, <clears throat> which is a reference back to Genesis 1. 
he created them male and female. He blessed them and called them Adam, meaning humankind or man, on the day that they were created. After Adam lived 130 years, he was just getting started, he fathered a son like himself, made in his image, and named him Shet. After Shet was born, Adam lived another 800 years, and then had both sons and daughters. In all, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. 930, eh? <clears throat> what do we make of that? Well, there are a few possibilities. In other ancient Near East texts, the Sumerian kings ruled for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. But if you divide the numbers by a multiple of 60 in the Sumerian text, they all make sense. And the Mesopotamian number system was based on the number 60. So to make them sound more epic, the Sumerian text is embellishing on a true number. A king who, ru who ruled apparently in the text for 1,440,000 years in the Sumerian logbook most likely ruled a reasonable 40 years. But uh, 1,440,000, no, 144,000 years, sorry, sounds cooler. Doesn't it sound cooler? Well, not the way I messed it up, but yeah, it does sound cooler. Kitchen says this, quote, in short, these look like real or realistic reigns that have been drastically bumped up through multiplying them by 3,600 to give heroically long reigns for the period between creation and flood, unquote. As for our Genesis text, perhaps they are embellishments along the same lines of the Sumerian kings, could be, or perhaps there are other possibilities. Kitchen suggests that the years reported after having children at a somewhat more normal age, so usually it's they have children like around 30, and then there's uh, usually like hundreds and hundreds of years after that. Um, so these, these are the possibilities. Number one, it could be the actual lifespan of the man himself. Hey, with God, all things are possible. We've, we've seen crazier things in the Bible. We've seen crazier things happen to us, right? God brings healing, God brings miracles. Why couldn't they have lived 800 years? It's possible. It could be the lifespan of his immediate family bearing his name. Or, third possibility, it could be the lifespan of the clan under his name, right? Like tribes from the son of Jacob later on, right? So Jacob lived 800 years. In other words, his clan or his family was passed down for that long until it dissolved into something else. Or there was another well-known head, and then that was the clan. You know, could be, could be any of those. As with any difficulty in the text, there are ways to process it, to understand the original context, and to harmonize it with what we now understand and know about science and history. So how about next week's Parsha? Noah and the worldwide flood. Not surprisingly, nearly every single ancient civilization has a flood story, a worldwide deluge as a result of angering the gods. Kitchen provides this interesting chart based on other Near Eastern mythic texts and compares them to Genesis. So he finds kind of like a pattern. So number one, there's creation. You see the, all these other ancient, you know, ancient documents. And then on the end, on the right, is, uh, is the Torah. So you have creation, 
um, the, the gods, or uh, in, in, in our case, God, uh, created, you know, instituted the creation. And then number two, there's uh, some kind of alienation. Um, and, and look at the second one. Noisy humans alienate the deities, right? So there's a problem because we're too noisy, right? And in Genesis 3, the, the alienation is because of what? Moral failure, because we, eat, we ate the fruit, right? But all of these stories are kind of aligned. It's just the details. What makes them different is also quite interesting, right? And then number three, there's a flood. And three out of four, there's some kind of ship that saves them, right? In, in one of them, it's the ship is a, is a giant cube, right? And one of the gods takes, it just takes pity on one of the noisy humans and kind of whispers to him, hey, uh, there's a big flood coming. You might want to build a, a giant cube, right? And there's some animals in there as well. And then four, there's a restoration and a, a new kingship and a new start and genealogies. And then, it, then he, he uses the term modern times, right? Where, where the Bible uh, says, and this, this is up until today, which is the writing, the writing of that. But uh, this is the flow according to uh, these ancient documents that the Bible kind of goes along with, but just presents perhaps a different angle on this. In many of the flood stories, as we notice, there's actually an ark, right? And, uh, and we see uh, again and again these things cropping up. The bottom line is this. If there are so many distinct accounts of the same event across multiple cultures, then one of them is probably true. You know, I'm not a betting man, but I would bet, based on this, that the flood actually occurred. It would be foolish to think otherwise, right? I don't have the faith to believe that there was no flood, <laughs> right? In my opinion, there are basically two ways to tackle the historicity of the Bible. One is to look at the scientific and historical record and try to harmonize it from that angle. And the other is to go to the original context and try to figure out what the text was trying to say. Or we can do both at the same time, right? In terms of context and genre, the creation story is, surprise, not a scientific text as a genre. It's a theological text. And it is describing something as it happened for the purpose of showing who we are and who God is. And that may, means in some ways it should be taken literally, and in other ways it should be taken within the genre or context of the time. So let me give you an example. Jonathan Swift wrote satire in Ireland during the Great Famine. And do you know what he suggested as a solution to the famine problem? In the essay, A Modest Proposal, Swift proposed that they eat the babies. It's a win-win, right? The point is, Swift was using humor, although a little dark, right, to bring attention to this food crisis. Anyone not understanding the genre of satire would be horrified. How can he suggest this, right? But he wasn't really suggesting that. He was using the genre of satire. So also, the creation story has a genre. It has a context. For example, the ancient Near Easterners thought of the world in three parts. The heavens, which was like a dome in the sky, and then the earth, 
and then the waters. And they believed that there were waters also behind the dome of the sky. When God separated the waters above the dome from the waters below the dome, have you ever read that in creation story and been like, what does that mean? Right? What that means is the ancient Near Easterners thought, understood that he was keeping the waters of chaos behind the dome of the sky at bay in order to establish the order and protection of creation. So the only water was the water below, right? And when it rained, water was allowed to break through the protective dome of the heavens. However, you remove all the protective dome of the sky, and what have you got? You got yourself a worldwide flood where the waters of chaos come back onto God's good earth. It's a reversal of the creation story and then a recreation after that. So this is just one example of thinking like an ancient person in order to understand the meaning and the truth and the genre of the text. You can do it that way as well. I also perused another helpful book in preparation for this sermon. This is called The Science of God, The Convergence of Scientific and Biblical Wisdom by Gerald Schrader. And this is a, a copy of that book. Um, as some background, uh, I found out that Schrader is an Israeli physicist and Orthodox Jew who, according to Dan Juster, was an atheist until his scientific studies and pursuits convinced him that there is a God. Schrader argues that we need to render unto Einstein's what is Einstein's and render unto the Bible what is the Bible's. Recognize the limits of each discipline, right? Science can, can only answer certain questions and the Bible can only answer certain questions but they can be harmonized if you think about it together, if you do the work. What people usually think of uh, as contradictions are one of two things. It could be two different viewpoints or perspectives on the same event, like the, the seven days of creation. There are scientific ways to explain that. And I've heard, you know, if you, if you follow Einstein's theory of relativity, right, time is different depending on your speed. And if there was a big bang that God instituted, then the, 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 the force and the speed of things expanding would have been, from one perspective, a couple of days. But from the other perspective, it would have been thousands or even millions of years, right? One day to the Lord is like a thousand years, right? That's, that's in the scriptures. So there are ways to kind of think about this thing, and you don't have to throw out the Bible with the bathwater, right? Okay. Um, so, so that's one way to do it. Um, he proposes that science and the Bible are not opposed to one another at all. And so um, a lot of the time, also, science is not contradicting the Bible, but it's contradicting the traditions of the historic church, but not the scriptures. Okay, let me give you some examples. Uh, some scientists that got in trouble with the church, like Kepler, for example, most of them were devout followers of Yeshua. Kepler proposed that the planets had elliptical orbits and not circular. And the historic church, not the Bible, claimed that ellipses were defective. Only circles would be perfect creations. God would only create perfect circles, right? But that's, that's not what the Bible says. That's just, that was, he was just rocking their traditional thought. 
Newton, a devout Christian, was thought a heretic for proposing the idea of gravity, which his colleagues at the time, they felt that subverted the power and majesty of God. Why do you need this gravity? It's God that holds everything together. Well, maybe he uses gravity, which he created, to do that, right? It's not a contradiction. Copernicus shockingly proposed that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the, sh of, of the solar system. This is Schrader again, quote, Copernicus was a believing Catholic as well as a prominent astronomer. He was both. His discovery did not shake his faith. What does the position of the earth have to do with belief in a creator or of the universe or the validity of the Bible? Nowhere does the text claim that the earth is central to anything. In fact, the very first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, places the heavens before the earth. But overly enthusiastic clerics, staking some imagined claim for biblical truth, extended Genesis to include what it never did, a positioning of the earth, unquote. Right? And I think uh, his way is, is actually more biblical, if you think about it, because, you know, we're not the center of the universe, okay? It's, it's not about us. It's about him, right? It's about the sun being the center. But that's, that's another sermon. I won't get into that. As for Darwin and his theory of evolution, this actually does contradict the thrust of the scriptures. And Schrader writes, there is no evidence in the fossil record of one species evolving into another. And Darwin knew this. He based his theory on small changes made by pigeon breeders and other domesticated animals, which we know happens. It happened with Jacob in the Bible, right? He, he finagled and got the, the healthy livestock uh, from, from Laban. That's, that's, we know that that happens. So Darwin assumed, quite likely incorrectly, that if in a few generations you could take wimpy livestock and make them into strong livestock in a few generations, then, of course, gradually, over millions of generations, greater changes would occur, so great that they would evolve into higher and higher, more complex species on the evolutionary tree. Schrader notes, and I quote, such an evolutionary tree has yet to be discovered in the fossil record. There's no evidence of one species becoming another species. It doesn't exist. I don't have enough faith to believe in Darwin. I just don't. What about the age of the earth and the Neanderthals, or Neanderthals as some people say? How do these square with the scriptures? Schrader again is helpful. Quote, Similarly, when Genesis chapter 1, the creation chapter, records a six-day period from the creation of the universe to the creation of the soul of Adam, Genesis 1, 27, this seems a totally naive understanding of the universe and its age, let alone the origin of humans. As we will discover, ancient scholars were anything but naive. Commentators' rigorous study of the wording of Genesis' opening chapters neatly folds the multiple of billions of years into six 24-hour days, even as the days remain 24 hours long and the years remain 365 days long. We talked about that, right? A simplistic reading of the Torah places our human origins at less than 6,000 years in the past, yet fossils of Homo sapiens extend back to 60,000 years. Neither source of knowledge need alter its view. 
Nachmanides, 700 years ago, and Maimonides, over 800 years ago, and the Talmud, dating back some 1,600 years, discussed the existence of beings living before and alongside Adam. They were described as human in shape and intelligence, but lacking the soul, the neshama, to make them human. There is no trickery here, unquote. It's just, you just got to do a little digging, right? So what about the apparent contradictions and holes in the Bible? What about the dinosaurs, right? Where did Cain's wife come from? Did you read, did you read the Parsha this week and wonder that? Why didn't God accept Cain's offering, but he accepted Abel's offering? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible is terse. There are obvious gaps and obvious seams in the text. But perhaps, perhaps that is on purpose. Let's examine an apparent contradiction in today's Parsha when Adam is told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on it, what's going to happen? When you eat that, on that day, you will surely die. And then, what happens? We just read. We read it twice. He doesn't die. In fact, he does the opposite. He lives 930 years. <laughs> so, what's going on here? These apparent contradictions are meant to draw us into the text, to ask why. Why, if God said you will surely die, did that not happen? Perhaps it's a clue about the mercy of God. Perhaps this was an example of atonement, whereby death did enter the world, and it was supposed to consume Adam, but God prevented it from consuming him. God provided a way to be rescued from death in the creation story, because that's what he always does, right? That's what he did for us. He rescued us from death. So why wouldn't he do that for Adam? There are deeper meanings in the creation story than a person can possibly fathom. The rabbis and theologians were given something to wrestle with, and they did, over hundreds and hundreds of years. We are the inheritors of a vast tradition of interpretation. And as a Messianic Jewish community, we have two traditions <laughs> that we, are, get to, we get to draw from. We get to draw from Jewish and Christian traditions reading this text over hundreds and hundreds of years. Both traditions acknowledge the holiness the truth and the inspiration of this book. The creation account is Jewish meditation literature. It's meant to be stewed over. It's meant to be thought about, discussed, and questioned. It's even meant to, to, to inspire awe at its terseness, at the fact that it has holes in it. We're supposed to be humble, humbled by that, that we don't know everything. From, this is from the Talmud in Tractate Hagigah 11b. This is what we find. <clears throat> uh, one may not expound on the act of creation and the secrets of the beginning of the world before two or more individuals. Whenever, whoever looks at four matters, it would have been better for him had he never entered the world. Anyone who reflects upon what is above the firmament and what is below the earth, what was before creation and what will be after the end of the world, 
Anyone who has no concern for the honor of his maker, who inquires into and deals with matters is not permitted to him, deserves to have never come into the world, unquote. You know, this text is, is exaggerating. That's what the Talmud does. But the point is this. There are mysteries beyond mysteries in the Bible, especially in the creation story. And we need to approach these difficult texts with awe and humility while still trusting, still trusting that the book is sacred and true and good for teaching us who we are and who God is and what we're supposed to do about it. And there are tools. There are tools to make this text easier. And I've shared these before, but if you need help, the two books I mentioned during the sermon are helpful, as well as a series of videos and podcasts that uh, are called The Bible Project, done by Pastor Tim Mackey, who has a PhD in, in Hebrew studies, and the complete Jewish study Bible that we sell in our bookstore. It has a lot of helpful things. It, has, it doesn't just have the Bible. It has, like, you know, what the Torah is. How did we get the Torah, right? And explains these things so that there's some context so you understand. But uh, whatever you use, I encourage you to read it. We got to read it. And even better, read along with the rest of the Jewish world by reading the, the weekly Parsha. That's what I'm doing this year. If you haven't started yet, you still got time. You can grab Genesis 1 through like the middle of 6 and read it this afternoon, and you'll be, you'll be all caught up. The weekly parashot are shared in the Tikvat Tidbits email every week, if you want to know what they are. You guys ready to do the survey again? All right, hold up your hands where you are, one to five. How literally do you take the scriptures? All right. Now, I want you to keep your hand raised if you went up a number or two, or if you were at a five and now you're like a five plus. You're like, yeah, it's the word of God. Keep your hand raised if you were moved in that direction. Awesome, awesome. Praise God. All right? My prayer is that all of us would move in that direction. Why? It is reasonable to take the Bible as true, holy, and God-inspired, and there are many tools to help us do that. The higher view that we have of Scripture, I think the better off we will be. The higher view that we can hold to this difficult text and, and trust that it is inspired, I think the better off we will be. If we simply take it to be a bunch of nice stories or myths, but nothing more, I don't think we're going to be operating on all cylinders. I don't think we're going to be moving where God wants us to do and, and doing what God wants us to do. It's a book worth investing in. It's worth taking the time. Yeah, all right. We can clap for God's word. It's worth taking the time to figure out a reasonable answer to objections. I get objections like this all the time. Well, what about this? What about that? And that caused me to do the research for this sermon. But it's not just me, right? People are coming to you. Jewish people are coming to you. Non-Jewish people are coming to you. How can you believe this stuff? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at ancient Urdu texts, right? Or let's, uh, let's uh, you know, read the creation story 
keeping in mind how they thought of the world. And then it kind of makes a lot more sense, right? It's a book worth investing in. After all, what was our verse from last year? 1 Peter 3.15. Say it with me if you'd like. Instead, sanctify Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with humility and reverence. I think that by studying this book, we will get more of a reasonable answer to those who ask us the reason for the hope we have. This is a reasonable thing to put your trust in, and I encourage you to put your trust in His Word. Amen? All right. Baruch Hashem. Abba, thank you uh, that uh, you gave us your word, and that I can call it your word, um, that it is inspired, it is, it is problematic, and it is, it is difficult to understand at times, and uh, there are things in it that, you know, there seems to be holes that we, you know, we can't really fill in, but you have given us um, Jewish interpreters, and you've given us Christian interpreters, and you've given us um, tools like the Bible Project and all of these things, and you've given us a community, and you've given us uh, a, a rabbi. I have rabbis, too, that I can, I can talk to. And you've given us um, brothers and sisters that have read more of the Bible than we have that we can study and learn and put our trust in you and put our trust in your word, that when you say something, it is good and it is established. That's what we say when we say amen. We're saying it is established. Amen has the same root as emunah, which is faith or faithfulness. So Lord, we ask you to help keep moving us up the, you know, up the numbers, right? <laughs> and uh, if we were a one, help us to move toward a two. If we're a five, help us to be a five plus. Um, to help us to be uh, uh, basically a 10, like Lauren did at the beginning, uh, and uh, help us to, to really trust you um, and, and to really stand on your word and to proclaim your word. And uh, when we're in the desert, to when we hear the voice of the other team, just like Yeshua did in the wilderness, that we will just quote Deuteronomy, that we will just quote your word to the enemy, that we will stand on the promises of your word and be strengthened because you are faithful and your word is faithful. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.